A little over a year after trading Russell Wilson, the Seahawks are feeling pretty good building a budding contender in the NFC. How different would things look, though, if Wilson wouldn't have nixed a trade to another NFC foe? We're going to be diving in on a new Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12s. This is Corbin Smith, the host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, your daily Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Glad to be joined for our latest Monday installment by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there, whether you are listening from Tampa, Florida, or you're listening down in enemy territory in Southern California. We greatly appreciate you making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. It's officially mandatory minicamp week for the Seahawks, Tuesday through Thursday. The Seahawks will be on the field. is no longer voluntary, at least for three days. They're expected to have Jordan Brooks and Jamal Adams at least on the field. They will not be participating, but they will be in attendance. They're going to have pretty much everybody there for their three-day minicamp. So we're going to dive into that tomorrow, but we got to wrap up OTAs. They have a few OTAs coming up after this, but... It's a little bit different. No more open media one. So we're going to put a bow on that and we're going to put a bow on our rookie roundup looking at Georgia running back Kenny McIntosh, the seventh round pick, who's looking to find a way to make an impact early in a talented Seahawks backfield. This episode is brought to you away by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sportsbook of the NFL. Make every moment more. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on today to get started. Now, if you're lead story here on our Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks, at this stage, it's still very early in the process, but the Seahawks have gotten the upper hand so far, big time, on the Russell Wilson trade. They made the playoffs last year. Now they've added Devin Witherspoon and Derek Hall with the two additional draft picks that they got as part of that deal. They already had Charles Cross and Boye Mafe. Shelby Harris came in and played well. Drew Locke, a solid backup quarterback. Noah Fant could be their long-term tight end. So it has been a very lopsided trade to this point. Again, there's plenty of time. Maybe Sean Payton re-energizes Russell Wilson. In a couple of years from now, we're looking at that trade a little differently. But we're going to take another step back here because some interesting reports coming out last week. And I will say this, Rob. I don't know if this is necessarily new news. We had heard plenty of rumblings last year that the Eagles had tried to make a move for Russell Wilson. But Greg Bishop of Sports Illustrated putting some more gasoline on the fire, saying that the trade was set up and it was ready to go, and Wilson nixed it with his no-trade clause. So that leads to a very interesting question. Just how different would the NFL world look if Russell Wilson would have said, you know what, I do want to play in the city of brotherly love. It would be a totally different picture for both of those franchises and the rest of the league. Oh, it absolutely would be. I mean, just think about what's uh, transpired o- over the last year and a half. Uh, you know, of course, the Philadelphia Eagles did not make that trade for Russell Wilson. Instead, uh, they built the, their team, uh, of course, around the quarterback Jalen Hurts, who at that time was on a you know his four year rookie contract, and uh, you know I think that was a, that was a four year deal worth basically six 
and a half million dollars, Corey. But now he has signed a five-year, two hundred and fifty-five million dollar contract. Uh, you know, so so the, the the franchise of the Philadelphia Eagles certainly has, uh, you know, don't want to be, you know silly here but has has absolutely taken off uh in, in flight here for the philadelphia eagles uh, i think it'd be interesting to, to really look in, and see some of the players that seattle might have been able to get in some type of a package deal had russell wilson uh at least that's what's been reported is that russell wilson basically nixed this deal um if seattle had been able to make a a, a trade with the philadelphia eagles who might Seattle have been able to get back in return? Would Seattle have been able to do the exact same thing that they did with Denver? Would they be able to get that young quarterback, presumably Jalen Hurts, uh, you know, coming back for Russell Wilson? Who else might they have have been able to get? Would it still have been the same uh, draft picks? Um, you know, the, the two first round picks, the two second round picks. Um, and again, I think it's important to kind of go back and, and you know, and, and look back at what actually happened. The Philadelphia Eagles were unable to make that trade. They built around Jalen Hurts. They did make a big trade, of course, on draft day for the wide receiver, A.J. Brown. So I, I think that if we are going to imagine a scenario in which Russell Wilson was playing in Philadelphia, that it is important to remember that he would not necessarily have had A.J. Brown. He certainly would have had the former Heisman Trophy winner, Devontae Smith. Obviously, that incredible offensive line and running game at Philadelphia mustered this past season likely wouldn't have been quite as good without Jalen Hurts running the ball and, and, and doing that rugby scrum kind of stuff that we talked about a lot here. But I do think that it's much easier to envision Russell Wilson as having success in Philadelphia, maybe not as much success, of course, as Jalen Hurts just had, but still having much more success in Philadelphia than he had in Denver. And I think it's also really fun from a Seahawks perspective, Corbin, is to kind of look and imagine the different uh, player possibilities that Seattle might have had in return for trading Russell Wilson to the Eagles. Yeah, I just think this is so fascinating looking at both sides from a hypothetical standpoint because I don't think Seattle would have been able to fetch quite as much in return overall because if you're going to include Jalen Hurts in there, he already had a better run as a starter than Drew Locke ever had in Denver. And so I don't think Philadelphia would be willing to fork over as many high draft picks or you would only get one or two players added onto the draft picks instead of three like they got from Denver. Now, you and I were discussing this earlier, and this is the trade package that you and I reached the consensus on might happen if this actually played out. The Eagles getting Russell Wilson, and I think this plays out the same way as the Broncos trade. I think Seattle offers up that 2021, or actually would have been a 2022. I have the years mixed up here, but fourth round pick that would have been sent over to the Eagles. And then Seattle gets Jalen Hurts. And I think Josh Sweat would have been an interesting player here for Seattle to inquire about, to get a guy that was early in his career, young player with a lot of upside off the edge, because who knows if they're going to be able to go out and get somebody like a boy, Mafe, because there's going to be a little less draft pick capital to work with as part of this trade, but we still got first round picks for two years, second round picks for two years and a fifth round pick. So it's almost a comparable deal Really, the big difference here is you're not going to get that third veteran part of the package. And I think you could maybe see Philadelphia say, eh, we're only giving up one second round pick and we'll do a third rounder. But I would expect that the trade was in a similar wheelhouse to what Denver was willing to give up. I just don't know that with Jalen Hurts as part of that package that you would have been able to get three veteran players in return. And who knows what that does to the draft capital. But not just imagining, you know, 
that ordeal, Russell Wilson going to Philadelphia. But what happens with Geno Smith in this instance? We we never get to see the comeback player of the year, most likely, because I would think Jalen Hurts is coming in and he's your starter if this trade goes down. Well, I'd like to think if they, if Seattle had made this trade, that that Pete Carroll would have stayed with the principles that has always been Pete Carroll, and that allowed an open competition between if Jalen Hurts had been brought into Seattle between Jalen Hurts and Geno Smith. The same way, of course, that the Seahawks did with, with Drew Locke. And and I am going to focus uh, or, or shift the attention here just for a moment because, of course, we know how remarkably well that Geno Smith played. But just focusing on the edge rusher that is Josh Sweat, uh, you know, Seattle may not have had the, the or not may not have felt that they would have needed to, tr- to draft Boye Mafia a year ago maybe they wouldn't feel like they needed to draft Derek Hall this year um but uh Josh Sweat is a terrific talent um you know he is a long lean edge rusher he is a player that wound up falling into the I believe it was the fourth round a couple of years back because he did struggle with durability issues while at Florida State but his talent was undeniable um and and the the fact is that anytime you're going to be trading a, a veteran player, certainly one who was owed the type of money that uh, Russell Wilson was, then the, the money has to work out. Yep. And I think that if you look at Josh Sweat's contract, he had recently re-signed with Philadelphia a three-year, $40 million contract. And financially, it would have made some, some sense um, you know, in, in terms of, of that swap. Um, Seattle, of course, they wound up going with Denver. They got Shelby Harris, who had had signed a, a, a pretty big three-year, $30 million deal um, with the Broncos. They, of course, got Noah Fan to, um, you know, the Seahawks have already, uh, you know, agreed to, uh, you know, to, to extend his the, the fifth year of his rookie contract as a first-round pick. I, I actually kind of looked at Philadelphia and thought, I wonder if, if Seattle – if we want to just assume for a moment that Seattle would have tried to take the exact same type of deal that they got from Denver, what if they had gone for the tight end, Dallas Goddard? Um, you know, he was due some more money. And, and because Philadelphia has so much depth along the, their edge rushers, I do think that Josh Sweat would have been a candidate. I also think there have been some other candidates. Like Fletcher Cox, the veteran defensive lineman, he might have been a candidate just because he was due an awful lot of money. And like Shelby Harris was kind of an aging player that maybe Philadelphia would be looking to push out of the building again the way that i think that denver maybe was was looking at uh shelby harris there's a reason why harris is not uh you know resigned with another club out there is because he does have a a great deal of you know value in his own mind of what he's worth so i think that if if seattle would have made a move with philadelphia i think that josh sweat would have been a candidate again i think that um fletcher cox might have been a candidate i also would have mentioned completely different other position that i just got to kind of mention here Obviously, Seattle wound up going with their, their first and third round selections on the offensive tackles. The Eagles have two of the absolute best, and Jordan Mailata, um, as well as Lane Johnson, the right tackle position. I would not have been surprised if Seattle had been pushing to make that type of a move, and if Russell Wilson would have uh, would have agreed to it. I would not have been surprised if Seattle would have got, wound up getting one of those offensive tackles back. And again, it would have completely changed how Seattle would have built their franchise. Yeah, we'll never know how it would have played out because – in reality, Russell Wilson said, nah, no thanks, I don't want to go to Philadelphia. Denver was where he wanted to go all along. And in Seattle's case, and in Philadelphia's case in this instance, sometimes the best deals are the ones that you don't make. And maybe Russell Wilson's now having a little bit of individual buyer's remorse, like, you know, maybe I could have ended up in Philadelphia and I could have been a quarterback playing for the Super Bowl uh, runner-ups. Or maybe they win the Super Bowl with Russell Wilson. So many hypotheticals, we'll never know. But certainly the Eagles, ever since the draft back in 2012, they have been smitten by Russell Wilson. They've been not able to get him. They tried to get him last year. 
Russell didn't have interest. So here we are. And the Seahawks have all those draft picks they got from the Broncos. They made the playoffs last year. They're feeling really good about their future. Coming up next here on our Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks, we're going to be putting a bow on OTAs, looking at a few key storylines coming out of the last open session last Thursday. We'll be breaking it all down coming up next here on Locked On Seahawks. This episode is brought to you away by FanDuel. Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA Finals because right now new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's right, $2,500 back in bonus bets. If your first bet doesn't win, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Then you can bet on everything from the money line to points scored and three-pointers drained. I'm a big fan of the player prop parlays. You can make bets such as Jimmy Butler scoring 20 points at negative 1,100 in game three of the finals, and you'll get paid instantly if you win. Plus, FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payout with a same-game parlay. There's no better place to bet on the playoff action than America's number one sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on and get a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. For our everydayers, we're going to be breaking down the first day of mandatory minicamp on tomorrow's episode. And we're going to be taking a foray into what move Seattle needs to make to put a bow on their offseason. What is one more move they can make before the start of training camp to really put their offseason over the top? That should be a fun debate coming up, so make sure you don't miss it on our Tuesday episode. The Seahawks have a couple OTAs after mandatory minicamp, but none of them are open to the media. And I can tell you from being in attendance at one of those last year, Players were basically doing conditioning drills, and it was mostly catered for the young guys, and they liked how that went, so they're going to be structuring it the same way this year. Not going to be much that you're going to be gaining watching guys just doing conditioning drills. So ultimately, OTAs, for the most part, are over with, with mandatory minicamp now coming up this week. This really is the end of Seattle's offseason program, Rob. And last Thursday was the last open media session, and – like any OTA, no contact, not a ton of stuff to glean from it, but it's always interesting listening to the press conferences from players afterwards, especially the veterans returning. And occasionally you see a guy that kind of has become a forgotten figure, whether it's because he's had a replacement drafted for him or signed in free agency, that kind of comes back out of the woodwork a little bit and says, hey, don't forget about me. And I think that's what we get to start here with our OTA wrap-up. Mike Jackson a player that many kind of had to left off. I don't want to say left for dead because that's the wrong verbiage here, but a player that has been kind of forgotten by people because Devin Witherspoon was drafted fifth overall and Jackson started all 17 games last year and I thought had a pretty solid season. Obviously not good enough for the Seahawks to say, you know what, we're not going to draft Devin Witherspoon. They think he is a dynamic talent. You and I would agree on that. But with Tariq Woolen now being out recovering from his knee procedure, Jackson is doing everything he can to put pressure on the Seahawks coaching staff right now saying, hey, this is not a done deal just yet. Don't forget about me. I had a good year last year, and I'm even better now. I've put the work in this offseason. He had a bunch of pass breakups and an interception in Thursday's session. He has been really good all offseason program. The few that I've been out there, he's been making plays. So 
this really feels like one of those dynamics that we're going to have to keep an eye on going towards training camp. I would think that Devin Witherspoon is the fifth overall pick is going to win that job, but don't put it past Mike Jackson to make this more interesting maybe than we anticipated. Oh, I 100% expect that. Uh, I expect Devin Witherspoon to ultimately start alongside Tariq Woolen as Seattle's starting cornerbacks. But Mike Jackson, uh, you know, is a competitor. Uh, he's a good football player. Uh, I, I felt that way when he came out of Miami years ago. We talked about this before, Corbin. I, I have no doubt in my mind that Mike Jackson is going to give you everything that he has got. That's just kind of the way that he's wired. And I, I love that you're kind of starting off the, the OT kind of wrap up with, by talking about a player and Mike Jackson, who I think kind of like Seattle's quarterback and, and Geno Smith, you know, a lot of people had written him off and uh, you know, and, and yet he kind of sees the opportunity that Seattle provided him a year ago, both Jackson and Geno Smith. And to me, that's where I would start off the OTA conversation. And, and in full disclosure, I was not there on Thursday, the day, that was open to the media, but I have had some conversations, seen a little bit of film work and, and certainly read as many articles and things as I, as I could. And, you know, the one thing I, I keep hearing about is how many plays on the ball that Mike Jackson is making the, the rapport that we are seeing with Geno Smith and, and a variety of different wide receivers that are out there. And to me, just considering the fact that uh, I think there's a lot of, of our listeners and our viewers. And as you said previously, Corbin, thank you so much to all of you, of course, for listening and viewing, but there's a lot of Seahawk and, you know, Seahawk listeners and, and viewers here joining us that are also Mariners fans out there. And they are struggling with the fact that they had these expectations after a spectacular year, uh, you know, a spectacular season a year ago. To me, that's where my mentality is right now. And when it comes to the OTAs, I, you know, you know me, I always want to look at the line of scrimmage. But as you mentioned, there's not much, there's not much contact right now. So my mentality is, all right, who are the players that were kind of the breakouts a year ago? And should Seahawk fans feel confident that that breakout is going to continue this upcoming season. Because right now, again, all those Mariners fans out there who are really disappointed, hopefully, knock on wood, the Mariners are going to get kind of get going again here. But right now, they certainly have been disappointing. And I think there's a lot of Seahawks fans out there who are wondering, is Geno Smith going to play as well? Is Mike Jackson going to play as well? And so, again, I, I think that that's a great spot to start here. And fortunately, everything I've seen myself, everything I've heard, uh, and everything that I've been, you know, kind of keeping up with, with some of the buddies who are attending these practices, um, they are telling me that Mike Jackson and Geno Smith have been two of the absolute best players in the field for the Seahawks so far. I'm glad he pointed out Geno because obviously we talk about him several times a week. He's the starting quarterback for this team and, and the story that he was able to write last year and he has a chance to add another chapter to this year. He really has come in and you know, I didn't expect anything less given what he has done in Seattle and just the type of player, the type of man that he has become. I expected him to come in still with that boulder on his shoulder. Okay, there's doubters out there. I'm ranked 15th on Chris Sims' quarterback rankings, and Russell Wilson's a spot ahead of me. Why? You know, the, that kind of stuff he's going to use as fuel. And, and what I've seen this offseason – it looks like there's a little bit more zip behind his fastball, which he had plenty of arm strength last year. But that is an encouraging thing to me because he's going to be able to thread the needle in those windows a little bit better than what he did last year. The mobility, that was something that Mina Kimes talked with us about on Friday. The ability to improvise is better than what I thought it was going to be. He just, there's another level of confidence that it looks like he's playing with right now. 
coming off of last season and having a new addition like a Jackson Smith and Jigba that he can throw the football to. And, and those two look pretty good. And, and, and Jigba has still been somewhat limited, but he's getting more opportunities now. And you are starting to see the craftiness. You're seeing the explosiveness after the catch. He's not going to run a 4-4, but he is going to get up to his 4-5 speed very quickly. And he's already showing that on the field. And so those are encouraging developments. I also want to talk briefly about Ken Walker III because you want to talk about expectations. Sometimes rookie running backs have really good years. Sometimes year two is the toughest season for them because you have your full off season, but their body is still coming off a year where they got a lot of touches. And sometimes you see guys have that sophomore year lull more at the running back position than they do some other spots. And so he's been a player that I've been watching, especially with Charbonnet now coming in. You've got all this extra competition that's going to push him. Charbonnet wants to get carries. He wants to get touches. So you've really amped up that competition there. But seeing how that dynamic is changing there in that group without Rashad Penny being there, and Walker says he still talks to him because he owes everything to him last year, being a mentor, even after he got injured, was a guy that Ken Walker III leaned on. And I just want to say this, Rob, and it's going to be a good segue for our final segment, but it has felt like that backfield has been a tight-knit group really throughout the Pete Carroll and John Schneider era, as much as any position group they've had. When Marshawn was here, guys looked up to him. When Thomas Rawls was the starter for a while, he had learned from Marshawn, and he kind of took on that leadership role. Robert Turbin, for being a backup, was kind of like that during his time in Seattle. We know what Chris Carson was. We've heard DJ Dallas and and Rashad Penny and Travis Homer, all these guys talking about how much Chris Carson helped their career and how tight-knit that group is. And that looks to still be the case going into this 2023 season, even with all the turnover now, Ken Walker III going into his second season, he's the elder statesman. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, to kind of go to your point here about the running back room and what a special group it is, I, I think that it always is a testament to Pete Carroll. I think it's a testament to his position coach, a running back coach, uh, Chad Morton, who, of course, was a former USC running back with Pete Carroll. So, again, I think that just the, the continuity um, in terms of his coaching staff and the program, I think it is part of um, the reason why that running back room seems so tight. Um, you know, I, I think a couple other things that just real quick uh, things about the OTAs that I was encouraged by. And of course, Abe, Abe Lucas um, was unable to participate, uh, you know, but still it's seeing Jake Curhan out there um, and Stone Forsyth as well. Both of them rotating at that right tackle position. I think that's, a, that's really important, uh, you know, the, as as much as uh, you know, the running back uh, running back position can um, can go down to attrition. Um, you know, offensive tackles, uh, you know, absolutely can be an issue there. And I have concerns about Seattle's depth at that spot. I had concerns all year last year, and Seattle's rookies remarkably made it through. But still, I think that it's important that you're seeing those players get some um, rotation. And because I don't want to end this on just nothing but positives, I will say one negative that concerned me a little bit. Watching some drills of Uchenna Nuosu, he looked pretty thick. Um, you mentioned before about the conditioning drills that are a priority throughout much of this OTA process, Corbin. I, maybe it's by design. Maybe it's just that he was wearing some pads that made him look a little bit bigger. But I did have some concerns here. You would seem that Uchenna Nuosu would be among the players that would be the most primed to have a big uh, second season here in Seattle, considering it's the final year of his contract with the Seahawks. And I do expect big things from him. But with all the pass rushers that Seattle has accumulated, 
it's critical. And Chandler Nuoso hits the ground running again next year. And so that would be the one thing I, I thought is just, I always worry about some players that maybe get themselves a little bit out of shape. And I don't want to be too critical. Far be it from me to criticize somebody for being a couple of pounds over. But I, I do think that that is something that bears watching moving forward. Yeah, and it could be an instance, as you said, where it's by design, too. Uh, I can't speak to this, but, you know, maybe they wanted him to be another five to ten pounds heavier for the season. It's possible that, you know, maybe there's some schematic shifts they're going to be looking at there, too. But that is just a topic in general this time of year. And it's interesting because a lot of times you hear this guy's in the best shape of his life. You know, that's always the main headline this time of year. But there are players, and I'm not saying that Nuosu is one of them that fits that bill, but there are players that do show up that maybe the offseason they rested up a little bit too much and they're trying to get back on track. That's not necessarily always a bad thing, and a lot of these guys can whip back into shape pretty quick. But you have to hope that that's going to be the case here in that instance. Let's talk backfield some more. We mentioned Ken Walker III and him taking on a leadership role. And one of the reasons that he's going to be getting that torch is because he's got a very young running back room around him. They've got two rookies. I mentioned Charbonnet, but they also drafted Kenny McIntosh in the seventh round out of Georgia. And he's a player that both you and I viewed much more favorably than what his draft positioning ended up being. I had a third round grade on him. He was the number five running back in my class. You had him in your top 10 early day three selection. So we both viewed him much more favorably. And the people that we've talked to, like Jim Nagy and Matt Barry, the Seahawks senior director of player personnel, I mean, everybody was surprised that he was still there in the seventh round. When I talked to the host from Locked On Bulldogs, from Locked On Georgia, he thought that Kenny McIntosh had already been drafted. And then when he saw that he was picked in the middle of the seventh round, he's like, this has got to be a joke. Like he was already picked earlier and he wasn't. So it's just such an interesting dynamic. And every year there's a couple of players that fit that bill that you're like, there's no way that guy is still there. How is he getting picked at this spot? And Kenny McIntosh falling to the Seahawks here. It does create a really interesting, maybe potential dilemma for the Seahawks, at least if everybody's healthy. That is the key here is with the way guys go down in the backfield, you always got to have as much depth as possible. But it could be really interesting seeing Charbonnet, DJ Dallas, and McIntosh trying to battle each other for the scraps left over after Ken Walker III. And that's the type of competition that Pete Carroll preaches at every position. Yeah, there, there is no doubt in my mind, Corbin, that if they're healthy, all four of Seattle's running backs, Ken Walker, Zach Charbonnet, Kenny McIntosh, and DJ Dallas, all four of them are going to be on active NFL rosters, in my opinion, next season or this upcoming season. I don't know that all four of them are going to wind up being the Seahawks. I think that all four of them though are good enough that some other club will pick one of them up if Seattle drops them or perhaps even more likely if Seattle, if there's one of those backs that Seattle wants to trade during late in training camp, I think that that might be a possibility as well. Seattle has not traditionally kept the four running backs. So I would be a little bit surprised, but again, I think these players are just that damn good and absolutely justify it. And so, as you said, Corbin, we're going to kind of finish up, put a bow, wrap a bow on our, the, the rookie draft class, at least among Seattle's draft picks. And so focusing in on Kenny McIntosh here, I mean, this is just the back that, you know, he, he just kind of fell through the cracks a little bit. I mean, running in the four sixes at the combine, um, and that, that's the biggest reason. 
this running back uh, class was spectacular, as we talked about so many times. But this is a guy who, you know, grew up both of his older older brothers played big time college football. Uh, you know, Dion McIntosh actually played at Wazoo for a year. Um, so, uh, you know, he came from a football loving family from uh, the state of Florida. Signs that George is a four star recruit as a true freshman. And Georgia comes in and is dynamic immediately. And then it's just the, the, the Georgia pipeline of running backs. I mean, he basically was just kind of asked to be part of that rotation. And that's one of the reasons why I really like his fit here in Seattle because clearly Ken Walker is going to get a bulk of the carries. And I really think the Charbonnet is going to get a lot of those, uh, you know, the, those short yardage and, and red zone type of opportunities as well. But I do think that there is a, a role for a player like McIntosh. To me, he reminds me a lot of, of Travis Homer, not just the fact that they're both uh, at least now McIntosh is wearing number 25, obviously Homer's old Jersey number with the CX. But I think that there is some elements of their game that are similar. I love the balance through contact that McIntosh has. I love, he's got a gliding style to him. Very good vision, better speed on the field than the, the four sixes and the 40 yard dash would suggest. He, he's physical, he's attentive in pass protection. I mean, he really is one of those backs, it's kind of the, the whole package. He just doesn't have any one elite trait. But again, I just absolutely love this selection for the Seahawks. I thought the Seattle had a terrific draft class. And in my opinion, there was no pick that they made that they are going to get any better value than their selection of Kenny McIntosh. Yeah, as I called him, and I took some criticism for this because I think fans, uh, fans a lot of times when they hear the phrase jack of all trades, master of none, they think that that's a slight. And I don't view that as a slight at all. I would, if I'm an NFL coach, I want to have players that can do a little bit of everything. I would rather have, I mean, obviously, if you got a guy that runs a 4 2 5 40 yard dash, you're going to find ways to take advantage of that speed. And McIntosh is not that kind of a speedster, but he has better speed than, as you mentioned, with the 40-yard dash. You watch him on game film, and he looks like a 4-4, high 4-4s, low 4-5 guy. Yes. It's a little bit different to what he ran at his pro day. And he's really got that slasher style. Not necessarily an elusive back, but he's a slasher that can stick his cleat in the turf. He can cut. He can break through some tackles. He has better contact balance than you would expect from a player of his side. He would break more tackles than you would expect. When you see him next to some of the other running backs for the Seahawks in the practice field, you're going to see him and you're like, nah, that guy doesn't look like somebody that would break many tackles. But he breaks a fair number of tackles, especially in the passing game. And I think that those are still the greatest assets for him. And you mentioned Charbonnet, the short yardage usage, red zone usage, and Ken Walker the third being the primary guy. Charbonnet is going to get some drives where he gets more opportunities. But I still think that third down role, and DJ Dallas has been solid at that the last couple of years, but he's going to have to fend off McIntosh, who quite frankly is just a more well-rounded player in terms of what you can do position flexibility. Why? You can move him out into the slot and he can run routes like a receiver. You can slide him to the outside. You can run sweeps with him, jet motion. You can do all kinds of fun stuff with this kid because he has that positional flexibility. Like he told me in our conference call right after he got drafted, tell me what to do, coach, and what, where do you want me, coach? And he'll do whatever you ask him to do. And so that kind of a guy, and oh, by the way, as you mentioned, he is the best pass. I think he's already the best pass protector on this football team coming into Seattle right now. 
because Travis Homer was that guy. DJ Dallas has improved, but I would put Ken, Kenny McIntosh as the number one pass protector in this backfield. And if he is able to prove that on the practice field, I have learned this the last several years watching Pete Carroll's teams. If you can't pass protect, you're not going to keep your job as the third down back. I think that is the most important thing the Seahawks value there. They obviously care about the pass catching ability too. But if you can't handle your assignments and play with physicality as a pass protector, you are not going to be out there. A couple of years ago when DJ Dallas was a rookie, we saw that happen. He had a couple really bad plays at the end of that overtime loss to the Cardinals. And I don't think he played much the next three or four games. It was a lesson. You have to step your game up here. So if that translates from Georgia playing against SEC competition and McIntosh comes in and handles his duties in pass protection and he's catching the football out of the backfield, I think he could be the favorite to win that third down roll job. And you could have two rookie running backs that are playing significant snaps behind Ken Walker the third. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I, I really think that it's one of the areas in which she can excel. I mean, I think the, the, the player has got to be the most nervous about all this has got to be DJ Dallas. And, yep. you know, and I thought at times last year that DJ Dallas really looked like a starting caliber running back, um, you know, and obviously he had some uh, there, there were some uh, some foul ups as well. I mean, anybody remembers the, you know, the running back option toss and things like that, um, you know, but still in, in terms of just raw talent, I really like like Seattle's uh, backfield. I think that it is ridiculously talented. And and I, I I have to kind of apologize. I misidentified the older brother, RJ. It's RJ and Dion. RJ was originally a highly talented recruit at Notre Dame. And uh, excuse me, Dion. Dion was originally a highly touted recruit at, at Notre Dame and wound up at Wazoo. RJ was a highly touted recruit at Miami. And then, of course, Kenny, a highly touted recruit at Georgia. We talk about a talented family. Um, and, and so, again, I, that's the type of bloodlines, athleticism, competitiveness that Kenny McIntosh brings and why I think that he will kind of fit in very well with, um, excuse me, brotherhood. That is Seattle's backfield. And I think the thing that we have to mention here kind of to close off, because I've gotten some questions about this on social media, and I hope our listeners understand that we do what we can to try to tie our show in with what our listeners want. We really do. And so I was getting this question from several people. They were saying, what are the odds based on past precedent that the Seahawks are going to find a gem in the seventh round in Kenny McIntosh? And I think if you look in the Pete Carroll-John Schneider era, this is actually a pretty darn good track record in terms of day three guys, your last four rounds. Robert Turbin, I think early in his career, could have been a solid starter for some teams. He had Marshawn Lynch in front of him, though. Ran for over 1,300 yards in his career. Spencer Ware, he's another player. I think if he ends up in Seattle at a different time, he might be a guy that gets a fair number of carries. But he had to go to the Chiefs to get an opportunity, and he had a couple decent seasons there as a sixth-round pick. We know Alex Collins had a few good years in Baltimore, gave Seattle a little bit of oomph two years ago in a reserve role. The only guy on this list that didn't play and at least do some positive on the field was Zach Brooks, and he was in that draft class that had three running backs in it. So he was a little bit behind the eight ball coming in anyway. But you had a Pro Bowl caliber player in Chris Carson, who was one of the best running backs in football as a seventh-round pick. Travis Homer was a good pass protector special teams guy. DJ Dallas has looked good with most of his opportunities. So 
they've really had a pretty good track record of at least finding capable rotational backs on day three, and they have found a real star in Chris Carson. Kenny McIntosh is a guy with the way that he tumbled in this draft and his mindset. I'm not saying that he's going to be a starter caliber player. I mean, he's got to deal with Ken Walker and Charbonnet right now just to get snaps here, but he has that kind of talent, though, and you should trust the Seahawks when it comes to finding these guys based on their past track record because most of those players, either in Seattle or with another team, were able to make a pretty good impact for day three picks. Yeah, that's one of the things I've always found kind of ironic that how many Seahawks fans out there are critical of the Seahawks selecting running backs when clearly they're pretty darn good at finding very good running backs. Uh, and so, yes, I, I 100% agree with you. And I think that it was very telling there to see that graphic and see just how much success Seattle's day four, day three running backs have had. As you mentioned, Zach Stacy from Clemson was the one back uh, that, that didn't have that as much success. Um, and, and he was a, a back that, um, you know, was the uh, the only one that Seattle selected later than him was Chris Carson. He was the most productive of the bunch, you yeah. know. So, again, it, it really doesn't matter where Seattle invests their picks in running backs. If they think that that player is worthy of a draft selection, that player almost always comes into the NFL and quite literally hits the ground running. And I like that you said wherever they draft, because I think that the counter argument here is going to be, well, they've had that much success with guys on day three. Why are we picking running backs on day two? But look what Ken Walker the third did last year when Rashad Penny was healthy. I know that fans are tired of hearing about that, but he showed the talent to be a first round running back when he could stay on the field. He just couldn't stay healthy. So I don't fault the Seahawks for the evaluation on that player. We saw what he was capable of. Unfortunately, uh, there was just a lot of misfortune there, but they're hoping that Charbonnet can be the next higher draft pick at that position that they're able to find some success with because overall there have been some misses. Every team's going to have those. You're going to have guys like CJ Procise that you think could have been really good players, but they couldn't stay healthy. But I think overall, whether it's been in the earlier rounds or it's been on day three, when the Seahawks have wanted to bring in a running back, they've generally had quite a bit of success finding at least rotational players. They found some pretty good uh, um, starter caliber guys as well. There have been some misses in there, but this is a position that they've had quite a bit of success at, regardless of where they draft players from round one to round seven, or even bringing in undrafted guys. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbett Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts to ensure you don't miss a single episode. Coming up on our Tuesday show, we'll be recapping the first day of mandatory minicamp, and we'll be taking a look at the key move the Seahawks need to make to put a bow on this offseason. What is that cherry on top? They can really put this roster over the top going into the 2023 season. We should have some fun discussion and debate coming your way on our Tuesday episode. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening in. Go Hawks.